0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 124. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapter 16 through 19 and follow with some thoughts about sexuality and the patriarchy. It's been a while since four chapters have covered similar theological territory, but in such different ways. Chapter 16 is an extended allegory, chapter 17 is a parable, chapter 18 is a metaphorical meditation, and chapter 19 is a dirge. Chapter 16 introduces us to an abandoned baby, a foundling, whose father was an Amorite and mother a Hittite. Any way you slice it, not Jewish. The baby is supposed to represent Jerusalem, which in its origin was a Jebusite city, so the parentage checks out. Anyway, this child is simply tossed aside by her parents, left to die in an open field, but the narrator, the I, that is, I guess, God, that is Yehezkel, somebody male, passes by, and I guess saves her. The child grows up into a woman, a beautiful, sexually available woman, And the narrator, that is God, that is Yechezkel, that is us, me, I, a man, decides that she will be his. Thus a covenant is sealed, then he lavishes attention on her, anoints her with oil, dresses her in all kinds of finery, bracelets, chains, a nose ring, earrings, and even a splendid crown. Do you have a sense where this is going? Quote, But confident in your beauty and fame, you played the harlot. You lavished your favors on every passerby. The thing which attracts the narrator, the man, the Hezkel, God, us, to the the woman, her beauty, her sexuality cannot be contained. She begins to fornicate nonstop. She mixes in idolatrous practices, including child sacrifice. She, quote, played the whore with your neighbors, the lustful Egyptians. You multiplied your harlotries to anger me. But the narrator will not simply stand by and let all this whoring go on unchecked. But in the meantime, even the Philistine women, you know, not paragons of virtue themselves, are shocked by the woman's lewd behavior, which now includes Babylonian and Assyrian men. But then our narrator ups his game. Calling her a whore was not enough because, quote, you spurned fees. You were like the adulterous wife who welcomes strangers instead of her husband. That's some cold shit. Whores accept money from their johns, whereas you, quote, you... Were the opposite of other women you solicited instead of being solicited you paid fees instead of being paid fees but now the narrator says it's payback time quote i will expose your nakedness to them and they shall see all your nakedness i will inflict upon you the punishment of women who commit adultery and murder and i will direct bloody and impassioned fury against you and this fury will also serve as an example to her sisters samaria the elder and sodom the younger And though they say, like mother, like daughter, the sins of the sisters pale in comparison to Jerusalem. Sodom is arrogant, overfed, and complacent, who turns away from the needy. In other words, the sin of Sodom, sodomy, was not, air quotes, unnatural sex acts, but not supporting the poor and the needy. Samaria is idolatrous too, but, quote, nor did Samaria commit even half your sins. You committed more abominations than they and by all the abominations that you committed, you made your sisters look righteous. But good news, once you're punished for your adulteries, sexually shamed and pelted with stones in the public square, probably by some of the men who had no problem sleeping with you, the narrator, that is God, that is Yechezkel, that is us, that is me, the I, will remember uh, the initial attraction and the initial covenant and magically renew them, and all is forgiven. (laughs) Chapter 17 presents a parable about two eagles. The first takes shoots from the tallest cedar in Lebanon and after flying around a city of merchants, plants the seed where it grows into a humble vine. The vine stretches up toward another eagle who's flying around. It wants water and better soil so it can grow into a noble vine. But will the vine thrive? Can it survive under these circumstances? Yehezkel unpacks the parable. The first eagle is Babylon, who came to Jerusalem and carried away King Jehoiachin and the elites, planting Tzidkiyahu in his place. But the humble vine appealed to the second eagle, Egypt, to help him relocate to a better location, but this will not succeed. Eventually, after the punishment phase is complete, God will pick a shoot from the cedar and place it atop the mountain of Israel, and it will grow into a noble tree. Then shall all the trees of the field know that it is I, the Lord, who have abased the lofty tree and exalted the lowly tree, who have dried up the green tree and made the withered tree bud. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will act. Chapter 18 is yet another meditation about Torah Tagmul, the concept of reward and punishment. By unpacking and debunking a popular maxim quote parents eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are blunted it says this is rubbish parents eat sour grapes it's on them a person is responsible for their own sins not of their parents or their children and being righteous is easy and here's the shopping list ready get your pencils out avoid idolatry avoid adultery avoid sex with a menstruating woman be excellent to each other don't defraud or steal feed the hungry clothe the naked don't lend money with excessive interest. Got it? Should I say it again slower? Simple, isn't it? And if you, by chance, did any of these things, you know, like adultery or, you know, sex with a menstruating woman, you can repent and God won't kill you because though it seems that God likes killing sinners, quote, is it my desire that a wicked person shall die, says the Lord God? It is rather that he shall turn back from his ways and live. Chapter 19 concludes this episode cycle with a dirge for the princes of Israel. But it's really another parable, this time about a young lion raised by a lioness. So the young lion learns to hunt and eat people. So people catch him and send him off to Egypt. The lioness thus turns to another young lion and teaches him the trades. And then that young lion goes off and hunts and eats people too. so the people catch him and send him off to Babylon. Get it? Each young lion was a king of Judah who got too wild and crossed a line and had to be dealt with. The chapter concludes with another parable, where the lioness mother figure is replaced by a vine growing by a stream, luxuriant and thick, so thick that one might fashion a mighty rod fit for a ruler's scepter out of her, but then she was plucked up and uprooted and moved to arid and parched ground where fire consumes her. So... I think you get what that means too, right? And so on that highly symbolic note, here endeth the lesson. I got to put it out there that I'm a little bit grossed out and kind of pissed off by the first allegory that Yehezkel uses in this episode where Jerusalem is likened to a young girl who's basically being groomed by the narrator to be his, let's be charitable here for a moment, to be his wife. And we're positioned as readers alongside the narrator. It's as if we're addressing her when he says, quote, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, live in spite of your blood. Yea, I said to you, live in spite of your blood. I easily slip into the narrator's eye. That's what happens when, you know, you read a story in the first person, you come to identify with the eye, especially if you're male. But the words he slash I uses to describe the woman almost from the first moment he sets eyes on her, well, judge for yourself, Quote, I let you grow like plants of the field and you continued to grow up until you attained to womanhood, until your breasts became firm and your hair sprouted. You were still naked and bare when I passed by you again, and saw that your time for love had arrived. So I spread my robe over you, and covered your nakedness, and I entered into a covenant with you by oath, declares the Lord God. Thus you became mine. Is this Ezekiel, Song of Songs, or Penthouse Letters? Because only two of the three are supposed to be, wink wink, metaphors. I mean, really realize that our narrator is a man, a heterosexual man, and this is all about what in the biz we call the male gaze. The woman is here. She's never named. She's merely here, like I said, for us to look at and her body to be consumed. She's an object, a desirable object who eventually has to be possessed by a, by a man. And, and once she's possessed or married or whatever, dressed in the finest garments, etc., she is to know her place. That is, she is to be mine. Kudeshit, set aside for me and me alone. Even though it's also kind of arousing to know that other men, you know, want her too because she's so desirable and beautiful, she is only sexually available to me. But then she goes and does something unforgivable. She gains confidence. She gets funny ideas about herself and for herself. She decides that she is going to pursue her own agenda and her own desire. And this, for the patriarchy, is untenable. You can almost hear the jealous rage suppressed in the line waiting to explode. Quote, "You played the harlot, you lavished your favors on every passerby. They were his." You know, the stereotype is that men don't share their feelings, they don't express themselves, but they do through laws. And pretty soon the law will come to bear on this whore. From the moment that Yechezkel, that we, that the male owner, the ba'al, the husband turns on the woman, the word whore, zonah Or the verb tizni and the various conjugations of the shorish zain nun he. They're deployed like 20 times before the chapter ends, and that doesn't include all the other uh, synonyms and colorful images. But when it comes to the patriarchy, say what you want about whores. It's a put-down, but it's a necessary put-down, just like whores are necessary to, shall we say, lubricate the gears. We can wag our fingers and crinkle our noses at whores, but we need them. And the more whoring, the better. Where else are you supposed to blow off steam? And, you know, we can rail against all the idolatrous shenanigans, the sacred phalluses, the fertility rites, even child sacrifice, as awful as that is. And despite all the best efforts of prophets, priests and kings, idolatry continues to persist. No, 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 no. What the patriarchy cannot tolerate for real is adultery. That messes with the system in the most fundamental manner. If my wife is screwing around with some other man, if I'm cuckolded, she not only unmans me, her wanton leg-spreading casts huge doubt that the son to whom I'm about to hand my possession or my fields or my throne is actually mine. When the king returns from his hunt, I'll tell him the truth. You must be gone by then, you and your children. I will not have their blood on my hands. Go as far away as you can. With as many men as you can, because wherever you go, Robert's Roth will follow you. Because the thing is, obviously, no one back then had access to a DNA test. When it comes to one-year-old Khalees, Jose, you are not... So what do we do with these kinds of women who dare to defy the proper order, who dare to pick their own partner or partners? What do we do with women who dare to do stuff without my permission, quote, I will assemble them against you from every quarter, and I will expose your nakedness to them, and they shall see all your nakedness. I will inflict upon you the punishment of women who commit adultery and murder, and I will direct bloody and impassioned fury against you. I like how there's no pretense here, no sterile legal proceeding where the men, you know, and sit in robes or wigs or whatever, and they sit in judgment and you know, bring to bear the fullest extent of the feelings, I mean the law, in a proper and dignified manner. No way, quote, then they shall assemble a mob against you to pelt you with stones and pierce you with their swords. You'll get what you deserve. And quote, when I've satisfied my fury upon you and my rage has departed from you, then I will be tranquil. I will be angry no more. What I would like to understand is, You know, what this allegory is supposed to teach us besides how to groom a young girl and lower her inhibitions so she can become the object of sexual use and possible abuse? And are we supposed to understand that if she dares to step out of line in any way, that any woman dares to step out of line in any way, we should murder her? And only through murdering her can we find any peace? Is there a lesson in standing over her grave so we can tell her, quote, thus you shall remember and feel shame and you shall... Be too abashed to open your mouth again when I have forgiven you for all that you did? And I know what you're thinking, come on, you're overreaching, you're overreacting, your PC feminist paranoia is out of control. You know it's like a Weinstein witch hunt. That's not what Yechezkel is saying at all, and besides, the beautiful woman did run off and sleep with all those men and do all those terrible things, so she deserved what she got, you know, to be stripped naked and set upon by a murderous mob of men, many of whom were probably complicit in the crime for which she was being punished. But I have to wonder, how many men does a woman have to sleep with before her man calls her a whore? Twenty? Ten? More than zero? Or is mere suspicion enough? In episode 33, I described the ordeal of bitter water that a woman must be subjected to because her husband suspects that she slept with another man. No one caught her in flagrante delicto, but she has to drink the bitter water anyway because the patriarchy cannot tolerate even the thought of a married woman messing around. And of course, the woman has to pay the price for that suspicion, not the falsely accusing man. The same is true, by the way, when it comes to a woman's voice or a woman's hair heaven forfend that another man see my woman's real hair or hear her voice. Because, as Shmuel is quoted in Tractate Kiddushin, folio, page 78, quote, a woman's voice is considered nakedness. And you know what a man wants to do when he sees a naked woman? Right here. And Shmuel is quoted again to say, on the same page, that one cannot even send greetings to a woman via messenger because then the messenger will want to... Right here. Uh, 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 Is this puritanical madness or just the patriarchy? Sadly, it's both. And for the sake of all of us girls, and yes, even boys, too... The patriarchy needs to be dealt with, and dealt with accordingly. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out Tanakhcast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your Shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 125, when we continue the book of Ezekiel, with chapters 20 through 23.